It will come as no shock to you. The, uh, the church and Christians have some problems. We like to fight and bicker. It, it's not over uh, the moment you become a Christian. There's conflict still. You can probably relate to that. I, I remember as a teenager sitting in a church business meeting that ended in basically yelling tears and anger. And it was just, oh, this is not how Christians should behave. And I can remember in another business meeting, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, as disorganized as that one, but people just bickering and complaining about stuff of really no consequence. And it, it's reality. Christians argue with one another at times. They, they get into some fights and some squabbles. And for all the praise I just gave to small group ministry, you just got to know when you get into a small group, there's going to be some conflict. And if you ever want to become a small group leader, you're going to have to learn how to manage some conflict because it's inevitable. Christians still sin. It's still something that we, we struggle against. And you may have asked yourself, and I ask, why, why exactly is that? I became a Christian years and years ago. Why do I still get into these fights? Why do I still get irritated at times? Why does five minutes of scrolling social media get me riled up and ready to just say a whole bunch of things that I probably shouldn't say. That maybe is kind of obvious. But the reason is not that you're just that way. So some people kind of throw up their hands and they say, well, that's just who I am. I'm just kind of an argumentative person. Get used to me. Get some thick skin around me. I just, I just blow up sometimes. That's not, that's not the reason why. And it's not the reason why that, well, other people are just so sensitive these days. They're part of outrage culture. They're just outraged at everything and they blow up because of my blowups. That's not it. It's also not, if you were under the pressure I'm under, you would respond the same. That's not the reason why you get into fights and squabbles and whatnot. The Bible actually points the finger, not outside, but right back here. The reason you get into a fight is because of you. It's because of something going on in you. It's really the war that's on the outside is actually just a reflection of the war that's on the inside. The Bible is pretty clear and teaches us there's a war going on inside of you. Inside of each one of us, there is a war. As long as you are alive, there's a war that is going on. And we're going to learn about that this morning. Usually we think of as a, a war as something with, you know, the guns and the grenades and the cannons. The war that's going on in here is a war where the weapon is your passions, your desires, your wants. James 4 verse 1 is where we're reading this morning. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Boom. Super clear. Not external, internal. James is writing this message to Christians, to brothers in the faith. And that's a helpful message for us to understand because this message is for the church and it leads to some conclusions. The first is that, yes, when you trusted Christ for forgiveness of sins and repented, you were delivered from the power and the penalty of sin, but not yet the presence of sin. So all the sins that a Christian commits, all of them, if you, are, if you are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, all the sins you have committed and all the sins you will commit are paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. So that means there's no more penalty for them in eternal death. You are spared that. The moment you get saved, you're justified 
The penalty is done away with. Jesus took that on the cross. Titus 3 verse 3 reminds us this, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So this talks about the, 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 really the power of sin, the power of our passions. We're, there, there was a time before Christ when you were a slave to your passions. You couldn't do anything about it. You wanted what you wanted and there was nothing to do about it. You couldn't change that. You were a slave, but Christ delivered us from that. However, the passions didn't just shrivel up and die. They were just removed from being your master, but they're still there. And your passions don't like being dethroned. And that's why there's this constant battle going on until the day we die of your passions, your desires, your wants, attacking, saying, I want to be back in charge. I want to be on the throne. And that's why we still have the, the presence of sin is not yet gone. And this is really why quite a, a number of people, when they become Christians, right around the moment they become a Christian, there's this huge spiritual war going on because it's like, who are you going to bow to? Jesus or your own desires and wants. Then they bow to Jesus and they receive peace. But then they realize, I have to daily kill and crucify those desires and wants. It's not, it's not once and done. No, it's a daily sanctification. And this war actually can sometimes intensify when you become a Christian because now you're being sanctified and you start realizing how much of that actually drove you before. And God reveals that graciously to us, slowly and slowly, but more and more, and kind of turns up the dial of the, the sanctification. And it can get intense. There's a war. And when that war strikes and we give a little bit of ground back to our passions, that's when those fights and quarrels start to come out of us. So the question I want to explore with you is how do we gain victory in that war? That's what James 1 verses 1 to 4, or sorry, 4 verses 1 to 10 is really about. And honestly, this is like the kind of passage you, you bookmark in your Bible and you fold the page over, dog ear it, because you're going to come back to it again and again and again. You're going to look at this. We're going to look at it from several angles, this passage. First, we're going to see that it's defining this war. There's a war inside. We need to just know who, who are the armies, what's going on in this war. We're going to define it. Then we're going to look at and let Scripture address the warrior, the per person at war. And then finally, we're going to see what we steps we take to see victory. So let's define the war. We're going to define the war that's raging in each person here, especially if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. James 4, 1 to 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. That's not fun. So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. Do you, not, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Let's take it apart piece by piece. The first thing, the war is not external. The cause of the war is not external. Yes, there's fights and quarrels, but that's not the cause. The cause is internal. It's your desires and passions. Notice it doesn't say your hormones caused the fight, right? It doesn't say your illness caused the fight. It doesn't call, say your lack of sleep last night caused the fight. It doesn't say your, your tough job causes the fights in your household. It doesn't, it doesn't even say 
government lockdowns caused your fight and your anger. That's not what caused it. The cause is internal. And the reality is many of us, we are pretty good at pushing down our ungodly passions and hiding them and maybe secretly satisfying them. But conflict and some of these things actually drive it to the surface and then you can see it. And that's why trials like having a sleepless night or having government lockdowns and other of these things, while they're not good, are a blessing because they reveal, they shake us up and they shake out way, what, where, what passions are still at work in you that need to be dealt with. The passage says, you desire and do not have. We've all felt that. To want something and to have that desire unsatisfied is not at all pleasant and it can lead to us taking measures into our own hands. This is the kind of thing that literally people murder for because they have a desire that is not satisfied. And whether this passage is referring to actual murder that's going on, that would be pretty awful in the church to have some murder going on. Certainly there's some hatred, there's some anger, there's some quarreling and division that's going on because of these passions. A problem it says there is you covet. So you want things that aren't your own to want. God didn't give them to you. They belong to somebody else, but you want them. And that's natural in the sinful human flesh, but it's not right. And when you don't get it, what happens? Well, you fight, you quarrel. And if you look at a text like this, if you're like me, the first thing I do with it is say to myself, well, that's, that's not really me. I don't murder anybody. I, 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 don't, I, don't even, I don't even really fight. Like I have, this is maybe a, a bad admission to me. I, I don't even as a kid remember actually really decking somebody with my fist. And I've, for my life, kind of wanted to do that. <laughs> so I'm revealing my, my sinful flesh right there. So one of you, if you're wanting to volunteer, no, but you might say, I have never dropped a fist, the drop the gloves and really took somebody out. And then you're probably just one of those people that does all your work kind of covert with passive aggressive comments, right? You're like the, the, the person who murders with a silencer. It doesn't make a lot of noise, but it's super deadly. It's just as awful. And you might be underhanded. You might use divisive comments. You might slander or tear down somebody's reputation or put them in a category and just slam the category. And you do all these things that end up being divisive, destructive, fighting. It's just, it's socially acceptable. It's not socially acceptable for you to drop the gloves and punch somebody. Even the, even the world would be outraged at that. But it's okay to make fun of them. It's okay to slander them. It's okay to joke about them cause conflicts like that. Well, this, this is the kind of attitude really that says my passions need to be satisfi satisfied. And if my passions can't be satisfied, then yours can't be either. So if I'm having a bad day, everybody around me is going to know it and their day had better be bad as well. I'm going to ruin it for everyone. That's the kind of thing we do when we don't get what we want. Now the passage presents another option. It actually says the reason you don't have what you want is just because you didn't ask. I tell my kids this all the time. Just say, please. It's all, it, it unlocks a world of opportunity when you just ask for it instead of demanding it, instead of punching somebody for it. Just ask for it. And we do the same thing. We just don't ask. How many things do we not have because we didn't clearly just bring it to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, I'd really like, please. 
And it's unfortunate, and it's revealing how many times prayer is really at the bottom of our list of options for the fulfilling the desires we have. And trust me, when prayer is at the bottom of your list and you finally do pray, it guaranteed will not be answered because if it's at the bottom of your list, it just reveals the thing you're asking for is actually not even right. It's not the right thing. Your motives are wrong. You want it. And it might not even in and of itself be a bad thing, but the reason you want it is to, to fuel your ungodly passions, the passions that are warring against you. And God in his grace won't give it to you because he doesn't want to fuel that. Before we go on, we should make clear what are these passions, these desires or these wants. The, the word in some of your translations might be lusts or pleasures. And if you look and, at the word origin, it actually is the same word that we developed into our English word for hedonism. Hedonism is not a good thing, okay? It's a, it's a seeking after pleasure. You're just, you love pleasure and you go for pleasure. It's the kind of pleasure, pleasure that marks our world, pleasure seeking that marks our world. And in scripture, it is always, every time you find this word, it's always negative. It's not a good passion. Being a passionate person in this text is a bad thing, okay? You can be passionate in other ways, but this kind of passion is not good. It's the opposite of the Christian way of denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus. So that notion of just listen to your heart, listen to your emotions, your desires, your wants, that's pretty much the, the stupidest thing you could tell somebody. That's feed the flesh. Just listen to what you want. Your heart is obviously deceptive and desperately wicked. Instead, it's listen to your savior that we need as advice. So these passions are the kind of things that make fasting so hard because I want to feed my body. And when you fast, all of a sudden, you're saying no to a pleasure, food. That's why it's so hard. It's the kind of thing that makes it so hard not to promote ourselves. We like to do it. We like to be promoted. This kind of pleasure is what wants you to be promoted. It's the kind of pleasure that seeks to all kinds of substance abuse, your drugs, your porn, your alcohol, all kinds of abuse of things and people driven by these kind of passions. And we do it because it feels good in some way to our body or maybe to our mind, but it, it kills our spirit. It's destructive to us. And these passions, if you want to take it a little bit further, the similar kind of passions to the ones listed in Mark chapter 4, 19, that in the parable of the seeds, the seeds are spread out and one seed grows and it's choked out by thorns passions, distractions, your cares of the world, the things you want that choke out God's word in your life. It's the same kind of thing. It's the human passions that 1 Peter 4 verse 2 contrasts directly with the will of God. So you don't live for the human passions, but you live for the will of God. You can't live for both of them. And it's finally 2 Timothy 3 verse 4 that mentions it's the kind of passions that mark false teachers. They're the kind of people that give in to every kind of sensuality and pleasure-seeking. So they're not good passions, okay? We don't want these passions to drive us is the point. And I want you to be honest for a moment because church is a good place to be honest. If you have a pen or a paper or a phone, just honestly take it out and just write down for a moment, what do I want? What do I want? Ask yourself and be completely honest, what do I want? Not what should I want. We all know that. What do I want? And you'll find, if you're like me, okay, what, what satisfies the flesh? So I want food. 
I want sex. I want people to praise me. I want, I want to be promoted. I want to have a comfortable life. I want to have a nice house. I want to have a vacation. I want to have people not angry with me at work. I want, I want, I want. We have a ton of wants. Those kind of wants can quickly drive our actions. So what do you really want? We have a difficulty being honest there sometimes. But if we can figure out and just say explicitly, this is what I actually want. And think about it. What do I really, why do, why do I do that? Because I want this. If you can really drive down and figure that out, you can figure out what's causing the war inside of you. Now, all the things we want aren't bad. We, we know that. So all of a sudden you're like, wait, is it bad for me to want a good night of sleep? No. No, it's not bad to want a good night of sleep. It's not bad to want people to not be fighting around you. It's not bad even to want and to, to desire some of the things that God has created to be good. Food, it's be created to be used for enjoyment. Sex is a good thing in the context of marriage. They're all good, but the problem is why do you want it? So there's some category of things you're just not allowed to want, period. It's just wrong. So it's, it's, it's never okay to want to punch somebody's face in. That's just not good, okay? So I know it's not good. But there are some wants. It's okay to have a desire, but it's why you have the desire. So do you want to lose 10 pounds so that people look at you and so that you can say, I did it? Or do you want to lose 10 pounds because you're realizing my body is a gift from the Lord? I want to steward my body and use it to serve him. I don't want to be in, con controlled by the sin of gluttony where I just eat, eat, eat to comfort myself. There's a difference. What you'll find though, and what I've found, you look at the wants in your life, the desires, the passions. If they mirror your next door neighbors who's not a Christian and you want the same things, probably you need to do some soul searching. There's something driving them. Why is it that we want the exact same things? I want, a, I want a nice car. I want a house. I want to retire early. I want a vacation. My next door neighbor who's not a Christian wants those things too. Do I want what God wants for me even more than those things? This is really, really hard to ask ourselves, but they understand then quickly why there's, why there's this war going on. The old man and his passions against the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So what causes all the fights? Well, it's you want stuff. You want what you want, and it causes a war on the outside. So now the text is going to take a sharp turn, and it's going to address the warrior. So we need to confront the warrior, or better said, we need to let God's word confront the warrior. And the warrior's not out there. The warrior's right here. James 4 verses 4 says, you adulterous people, He's speaking to Christians here. And he's calling them adulterous people. I have been called a bunch of things. I have never been called an adulteress. And I can just imagine if you've been called an adulteress, if I was called an adulteress, what a sucker punch that would be. To be accused of being unfaithful to my wife? That's awful. And it's meant, it's got an exclamation mark in your Bible likely because it's meant to be intense emphatic, you adulterous people. When we sin against God, when we put our passions and desires above the Holy Spirit's desire for our life, we have committed spiritual adultery. It says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. A friend of the world. That's somebody who has not just, you're friendly and you're nice to people in the world. It's somebody who has adopted the world's way of thinking. You're not looking at scripture, God's law, God's ways. You actually just think more like a non-Christian. You're doing the world's way of doing things. These people have either abandoned God's word or God's law, or maybe they never really grabbed onto it in the first place. And by doing so, they're made an enemy of God. They're like spiritual adulterers who slip into cheating against God. Notice it doesn't say marriage with the world. It just says friendship. So it's like not even you're making a covenant with the world. It's just you're slipping closer and you're cozying up and you're like, you're friends with the world and the way it does things. Obviously, we need to be in the world. So don't take this to be off in your, your, uh, your holy huddle where you never engage with the world. The fact is, even there, you can be a friend of the world because you do things the way you want. The world is not all just out there. <laughs> Sadly, the world, there's a lot of the world and the world's desires in us. And so this is not just, oh yeah, making a big covenant commitment to the world. It's a friendship slipping into doing the things the way the world does it. The text goes on to say this, or do you not suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he, Jesus, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. God is jealous of the spirit he has placed in you. He created you. He made you. The worst thing possible is for the creation to turn around to the creator and say, I don't need you. I'm going this way. That is something that causes God to be righteously angry angry and jealous over it. He should be jealous over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. And honestly, if it weren't for the grace that it says he gives us, he gives more grace, he would destroy us immediately for our adultery. It's like coming home, finding your spouse cheating right in front of you. What are you going to do in that moment? In your moment of anger, you can just imagine what you'd want to do. Now just 10 times at times, a million, God's holiness, our sinfulness, and the willingness that we do it so blatantly at times, the friendship with the world. God is gracious and it highlights his grace. But this passage leaves me with two questions that I want to ask you. First, I ask myself, why do I get so close to the world? I don't want to be an enemy of God. That's exactly why I became a Christian, so that I would no longer be an enemy of God. So why is it that I still seem to desire to be close to the world? I kind of want both at the same time. The true religion, James says earlier, is to keep oneself unstained from the world. Staining happens just by contact, by, by happening it quickly. And it's, it kind of stays, right? Like if you have you know, some berries that spill on your shirt, it's not like they have to stay there. They just come and they get stained. True religion is to stay away from that stuff, to not be stained by it. We shouldn't want even a hint of the world's ways. It's like, honestly, in West Windsor, we have a, a sewage treatment plant. I think in East Windsor as well. Nobody in their right mind designs their beautiful home right next to or in the property of the sewage treatment plant. It smells. It's awful. Everybody wants to, desires to be farther away from that. And similarly, why do we desire to go back to the sewage of the world's way of doing things? Well, the reason, I think, is because friendship with God, we know we need that. It saves us. But the friendship with God exposes our passions and desires. It exposes us. And we don't like that. Whereas the world's ways fuels 
our passions and desires. It tells us what we want to hear. It tells us it's about you. Satisfy your desires. Satisfy them first. You can't help other people until you help yourself. You need to take care of yourself. You time. And it just feeds your passions and desires. And that's why. So obviously we know it's enmity with God. It's enemy with God. The second question though to ask ourselves around this passage is, okay, I don't want to cozy up to the world. I want to be friends with God. I want to stay in right relationship with him. So then the question is, okay, what actually is the ways of the world? What does that actually look like? And some of them are so obvious. Selfish ambition, self-promotion, pride of sorts, lying, deceit, slander, the whole list of the, the fruits of the flesh listed in Galatians, sexual immorality, immorality. It's so, it's like blatantly obvious. Okay, that's, that's clearly the world's way of doing things. But there's, in a context like this, where we know better than a lot of those things, there's a whole lot of those respectable sins, as Jerry Bridges calls it, those things that get a pass by most Christians, but they are just as awful and just as heinous. So we could have things, even this weekend, I was thinking and talking over with brothers, do we avoid dependency on God and trust in his provision and cover it up with words like, well, I'm just being very wise and prudent. And it's like, yeah, but, or is he calling you to radical sacrifice that puts yourself in his hands where you have to trust him? Maybe we, we hide behind our wisdom, but it's actually not obedience to God and what he's calling us to do. We can hide behind all kinds of righteousness that's actually not righteousness. It's not walking in step with the spirit. It's just, it's respectable, but at the end of the day, it's feeding our passions, our flesh. This can happen even to pastors and preachers. I can preach a message and what's it about? Is it about ultimately the glory of God or is it about appearing wise and like I have something good to say? It, it attacks at so many levels. It's so subtle. Sin is sneaky. And it reminds us, what are we doing what we do? Is it for the passions waging war in our heart or is it for the Lord? And the result is, if it's for your passions, you'll, you'll end up in these fights. Even the, the underhanded silencer type fights. It reminds me of how much I don't want to admit just how sinful I am. When we engage in desires or friendship with the world, we are enemies of God. Enemies of God don't fare well, just in case you haven't read. It's not where you want to stay. It's genuinely that bad. As a defense mechanism, so that we can keep our sinful pleasures, there's some things we try to do. We try to pretend there's no, no war going on. Uh, there's actually, there's no war going on. It's not that bad. We can minimize sinfulness we can minimize God's holiness. So one of the ways I've, I've in the past minimized sinfulness, and I've shared this with some of you before, is I used to call sinfulness brokenness. So I said, we're all broken by sin. That's not technically true, uh, false. We are broken by sin. We're, we're broken. We're not the way we should be. But broken is a passive word. Okay, so if you're broken by sin, I, I have a mug at home that I dropped or one of our kids dropped and it broke. It's a broken mug. The mug did nothing to break itself. I broke it, but the mug is broken. If you describe yourself as broken, you're like, I am broken. That it might be true, but who broke you? You did. You're not just broken. You're an adulterer. Okay? 
You are a, a, a sinner. You are a rebel. I am a rebel. I'm not just broken. So this is a way, when we say I'm just broken, we're actually minimizing our sinfulness and we're kind of depersonalizing it. It's out there, yeah, I'm, I'm broken. I'm just broken. No, admit it. You cheated on God. It was you. You have to face the music. You have to face up to it and repent of it. I have to repent of it. And if we don't, we are in a huge, huge problem. We need to call sin for what it is. We need to not just laugh about it. It's so easy. It diffuses a situation, right? You, you're kind of like, oh, you're convicted of sin and ha, 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 laugh off. Because laughing is a protective device. It's good to laugh and we have lots of laughing and joking. But if you find somebody that always is the jokester and is always laughing, they're covering something. They use it as a protective mechanism. And we do that. So watch what you laugh at. If you laugh at sin, eventually you come to accept it. It's not that big a deal. It's serious. And it's so hard. I, I don't want to be the guy that always is the killjoy of a moment. But guys, if we're laughing over sin, you got to somehow just stop that. Get a straight face and be like, that is actually making you an enemy of God right now. Okay? Some of us do need to loosen up a little bit, but some of us need to rein it in, especially when it comes to, to sinful areas. Here are a other, few other ways we might give defense to our friendship with the world. We minimize it. I mentioned that. We justify it. So we say, I have no choice. We might compartmentalize it. We say, that's just a part of me. We might rationalize it, say, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. Like, yeah, I cheated on God, but it's like the equivalent of like, I looked at porn, but like they went all out. Doesn't matter. You're before God. You stand before God. So praise God that in the midst of this, he gives grace. It says he gives more grace. Because if he didn't give grace, there's no way we could win this war. Because you, you and I are realizing, hopefully by this point, just how messed up we are. And this is where we see the last step. And that's why the final step to the victory of the war is to wave the white flag of surrender. And that's to humble yourself. It says in the text, James 4, 6, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is that ability to lower ourself, not only in others' eyes, but in our, in our own eyes, to bring ourselves low, to realize who we are. In a world that the, in the way the world works, it actually celebrates pride. It gets even worse and worse. They're like more and more pride, pride, pride. Like, don't you not realize God opposes the proud? That's to invite God's opposition. If we want to have full access to God's grace, not his salvific grace, but the grace of sanctifying grace, we need to humble ourselves, humble ourselves before God. This passage continues with eight imperatives. Here's what we do now. By grace, this is what we do. One, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. So submit to him. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Okay, this is getting a little heavy. I've called you adulterers this morning. Now you're called sinners, double-minded. We need it. I need it. We need to kind of wake up. We're double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. It starts with submission to God. So rather than set yourself up as an enemy, you submit to him. King Jesus, you lay down the weapons of war 
which in this case aren't bullets, it's your desires. You lay those down. That's what's, that's what's causing the war. When you put your desires down on the ground and say they're yours, Lord, that's when the war ends. Jesus said it so well in Matthew 16, verses 24 to 26. He said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. That's the object of shame where people were crucified and follow me. For whoever would save his life, whoever would feed all his wants, get everything he desires, will actually lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Once you have submitted, sorry, that's not scripture. I shouldn't read it like scripture. So once you have submitted, once you have submitted, there is still an enemy at work, the devil. That's why it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And this is a a huge gem. Satan will not perpetually attack you. He will at times attack. If you resist him drawing near to God, he'll actually flee for a season. He'll come back waiting for the moment when you draw away from the Lord and he's right there ready to pounce again. But the moment you can, you can resist the devil in the strength of God. You can resist him. There is no temptation that is going to overcome you that you can't resist every single time. And that's why we know at the end of the day, we're to blame when we fall into sin. It's always back on us. God gave us the way out. He gave us the Holy Spirit, the ability by his grace to draw near to him. So every single time we are given a way of escape. This is also so awesome because we don't have to live in anxiety about the power of Satan. He has some some power, but he's really the analogy of a, a dog who's chained up and he's got a really nasty bark. But literally, if you just stay away from the chained area, you're good. Don't let him tempt you to come in and get bitten. Draw near to God. Satan is powerless. Don't be intimidated by him. Don't be intimidated by his temptations. Instead, draw near to God. This next line, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a beautiful picture where we're drawing near to him and he's responding to us. Now, this isn't a salvific verse. It's not like we make the first move in being saved. You got to come to God before he comes to you. He always makes the first move. He comes to us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. But in the sanctification process, you need to draw near to him. There's an active call. You need to draw near to him. And then he responds like the the prodigal son's father with open arms every time. This summer, I was uh, sitting down at a piano at, um, uh, at a cottage and there was a hymn book and I opened the hymn book and sat down with the kids and I was playing some old hymns that I had listened to growing up. And it was just a nostalgic kind of time. You're like, oh, this is neat. And we played one song and the kids kind of liked it. And so I played it again and I had heard it before and loved it. It's called Abide With Me. And it's a beautiful song, the way it's, the, the music is. Like it's a call, Lord, abide with me. Fast falls the even tide abide with me. But as I finished the song, I'm like, I think this orientation is set up wrong. Like where in scripture do we really need to call out for God to abide with us? I can think of tons of places in scripture where God's saying abide with me, but he never leaves. He doesn't, he doesn't move. He doesn't abandon you. You abandon him time and time again. And so the song really should be like, Lord, help me abide with you. 
It's, it, it would be almost singing like abide with me, Lord, is almost like singing gravity, please hold me down. Like when has gravity not held you down? God is way more consistent and faithful than gravity. We don't think twice about whether gravity is going to hold us down. We just expect it, anticipate it. God says to his people, I will never leave you or forsake you. Never. But there's times when it feels like he's left or forsaken us, but it's always us who's moved. We move away from him. So the call is draw near to him. And then this beautiful thing in that moment, when you draw near to him, he's not like the cold shoulder, like, I can't believe you left. He's come back and he draws right in near to us and embraces us. And it's a beautiful thing. It's his grace that's more. We must remain with him. The next command there is to purify ourselves, right? Purify your hands, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, you double-minded. And that kind of mirrors the Old Testament rituals they did of purification. And the idea is cleanse the stuff away. Confess it to the Lord and just get right with him. Purify him of, purify yourself of these things. Don't be double-minded. We have so much of that where we want both things. We, when we chose to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, chose a way of denial of self. What I want no matter, doesn't matter anymore. I, I can't, it's so, like I'm saying it and I'm thinking, yeah, but I, it does. It does matter. <laughs> it matters. I, I get frustrated. Just think even of the arguments you have. I have kids, so I use the analogy. I have kids. How many of the fights I have with my kids are me with righteous anger, correcting them and disciplining them in the way of the Lord? Versus how many of them are, I don't want to be late. Get your act together. And I don't want to have to take this long to get you ready, so I'm not going to get up earlier and get you ready. So it's, it becomes a fight. But the fight isn't motivated by righteous anger. The fight is motivated by my desires again. And so, so many of these things we'll see. When we called to follow Christ, he called us to lay down our desires for him. Years ago, somebody shared a time management strategy with me. Uh, you may have seen it before. There's these jars they set up. There's, they're called a priority jar. And you set up two jars and in one, you put in some sand first, and it's supposed to be like your menial tasks, and then your small rocks, things that are kind of important. And then the last thing you try to fit in is the big, important stuff, and it doesn't fit. And then it comes over to this other jar, and they're like, if you put the big, important things in first, the big rocks, and then some smaller rocks, and then pour in the sand last, you can fit way more. And so if you prioritize and put God first, then you can put all these other things in. And there's some truth to it, if you put the right things in first, you can fit in more. But the foundation is wrong if you think, if I put God in first, I can still get it all, <laughs> right? I can still have all my wants and desires. Well, that's true if your wants and desires have been refined by the Holy Spirit. But if you want all that sinful desire stuff still packed in there, it's not going to fit. It doesn't. There are stuff you have to say no to, and that's just the reality of how it goes. So things like the desires to have a to-do list, we have all a to-do list and, and there's things that you're thinking already for this week, I got to do this this week. And you might get to the end of the week and say things like I do, like, I just don't have enough time. Oh, there's so much to do. There is so much to, and to do, but you do actually have enough time. You have enough time. And the, the neat thing and the thing I'm realizing over and over again is there's one thing you have to do every day, God's will. There's one thing. And some of it fits in. And some of it's your desires that won't fit in and it shouldn't fit in. 
and you just surrender that, you can get stuck in a traffic jam and think, I'm not getting done all the stuff I need to do. You're not sovereign. God has you in the traffic jam for a reason. Maybe it's to remind you, yeah, all your desires and wants, what are, what's really fueling them? Is it sanctification? Is it holiness? Nothing happens to you apart from God's hand allowing it. So leaning into that and seeing, Lord, what do you have for me today? If you're working seven days a week, one day is outside of God's will because you're not supposed to work seven days a week. We're supposed to take rest. So something, even if it's all good stuff, is outside of his will for you. The passage continues. It takes, takes sin seriously. So when you have committed adultery, you don't slough it off and laugh. You're not supposed to laugh as we already talked. You're supposed to instead weep, be wretched for a time. That's the, ugh, nobody likes to be wretched. Be wretched. Stop laughing. Time to get serious. And then the final command is to humble yourself. So to get yourself low, submit to God, and then he's going to exalt you. I've read that passage so many times. Humble yourself and he will exalt you. And I'm like, is this a trick? Is it like where if I humble myself, God's going to elevate me and praise me? That's not what exalting you means. You're going to be exalted over your enemies. Your victory is going to be over. You're going to be raised up in victory over your own desires. Your desires are the passions and stuff that war and you're going to be exalted as the victor over them by God's grace. You're going to be exalted over your desires. So humble yourself. He's not going to raise you up beyond him. You're always supposed to praise him, but he's going to give you victory over those things as we submit to him. This is the final verse I want to leave with you. Desires are deadly, okay? James 1 verse 14 and 15 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. And sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. The starting point of death is to cave into the sinful passions, the desires that we have instead of denying ourselves. And I just want to remind you, as we, as we think of all this, we're like, I want to crucify the flesh. I want to crucify those desires. I want to follow Christ, be a friend of Christ, not an enemy. The only way you do that is by grace. The only way you do that is by grace, not by mustering up your own strength. You look to the cross, as Hebrews 12 called us to. We look to the cross of Christ and we consider him who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, bearing all the shame and the suffering, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We look to Jesus and we look at his example that was set. He could look at the joy of what's set before him. And hopefully we look at not just oh, all these things I give up, but we look at the joy of what is before us. And so let's pray to that end.